0: Uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 7 and verse 36, and the passages uh, up there for you to follow. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who'd invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him, and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I guess you go through life, you make certain assumptions about uh, different people in different situations, uh, and sometimes you're you're absolutely right. Sometimes you are desperately wrong uh, about those assumptions, but uh, it's fair enough to make them, isn't it? We're we're living in this world, you understand certain things, uh, and you make certain assumptions. Maybe you've got assumptions that you've made about God. If you acknowledge, well, there may well be a God who is there, uh, who might have made this world... Maybe you've got certain assumptions concerning him that may be helpful assumptions. They may be right assumptions. but Maybe they're not so helpful. Maybe they're not so right. A passage that we're going to look at that I read to you from Luke 7. Uh, there are some assumptions going on here. Uh, we're going to look at three things. And, and the first and the third are wrong assumptions uh, that people have about God that turn up uh, in this story. Uh, and in the middle, we'll look at. Uh, something else that takes place uh, in this account, but wrong assumptions about God can be they can be very uh, influential in, in your life, depending what those assumptions might be Just reading a, an account recently of um, tony blair 's early years uh, in office, and uh, he, he had to go to Balmoral just after Princess Diana had died. Uh, the, the, the weekend, I think, following uh, her funeral, uh, traditional for the Prime Minister and his wife, uh, in, in Tony's case, I guess if it was uh, Mrs Thatcher, it would have been Prime Minister and husband, uh, to spend that particular weekend up at Balmoral uh, with the Queen, and he was shown into a particular room, and is just about to sit down in a seat when apparently the footman who had shown him in uh, went, <coughs> and something of that kind, and, and the Queen herself looked aghast. Uh, Tony Blair, and you're, sort of, you're half sitting down, ooh, what's, uh, what's wrong? That's a chair that Queen Victoria had, and no one has sat in it since her day. Well, I walked in this room, my assumption was it's a seat and you can sit in it. Well, he didn't say that, but maybe he, that's what he, uh, he thought. That could have had serious consequences in terms of relationship with the Queen, uh, I guess. But in this particular passage, it's assumptions about God. That really come to the fore. First of all, the man whose home at Jesus is in—he was a Pharisee, as I mentioned earlier—one of the uh, religious groupings, religious leaders in those days. They had a particular take on things, and they want to know: Is Jesus with us, or is he not? So, this meal where Jesus is in this man's home—it's probably a fairly tense affair in some ways. Uh, usually when we invite people into our homes for meals or if you go into someone else's house, it's because you're mates with them generally, isn't it? And you're expecting to have a a nice, relaxed time. Uh, Jesus, despite uh, us reading here that he was reclining at the table, and you need not worry, it's all right to have your elbows on the table Uh, in those days. They sort of laid out next to the table and you'd have your, your elbow on it. That's how this woman can end up at his feet. It does sound rather odd, doesn't it? If you're reading this and thinking, table on seats, that a woman is underneath the table at his feet, it sounds really weird. Well, it wasn't that. He's lying uh, out sort of horizontally, uh, elbow on the table. That's how they act. I don't know if it's good for your digestion or not, but that's just the, the custom uh, of the day. But although Jesus seems relaxed, uh, I'm sure he, he probably wasn't over-relaxed because it's quite a tense scene. He's on show. Someone is, is looking at him, wanting to make an assessment of him. Is he with us or not? Is he on the level? Is he someone who really we can trust the religious future of this nation too? So this man called Simon is there. And it becomes clear that he has certain assumptions about God and about Jesus that influence his thinking and his relationship with other people. Look how it pans out. One of the Pharisees invites Jesus to have dinner with him, went to the Pharisee's house, reclined at the table. A woman in that town who'd lived a sinful life, a prostitute perhaps, someone who was seen by uh, the men in that town as, uh, as a, an easy lay, however they would have described it. That, that's the kind of thing that's being spoken of there. A woman who'd lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house and came with an alabaster jar of perfume. She stood behind him at his feet weeping, began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair kissed them and poured perfume on them. Now, this is the point where you're beginning to see where, where, where Simon's thinking is. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him. And what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Maybe a couple of assumptions going on in his mind there. Uh, if this man's a prophet, He'll know all about her. It's, it's a fair assumption, really. Uh, I don't think he's thinking to himself, is this man God come in the flesh? That, that, that probably wasn't in his thinking at all. But is this man a representative of God? Is this man a prophet? Because we know that prophets, when they come, they can sort out the wheat from the chaff. They know what's going on in, in people's hearts. If he was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Well, in a sense, he's, he's right in that assumption. That's not his uh, wrong assumption. It is true that God knows everything. Often God had opened that kind of thing up to his prophets. He would have uh, given them insight and so on and so forth. It's a, it's a right assumption, but he's drawn the wrong conclusion because he has another assumption at play. Uh, we, we know, actually, that Jesus here is able to do that because it goes on. Jesus answered him, Simon, I've got something to tell you. Simon sat there thinking to himself. He's a prophet. He, he'd know what kind of woman she is. Maybe his face has gone quite stern. And maybe you'd say, well, Jesus didn't read his heart. He just read his face. And knew that he could work out what the guy was thinking. But Jesus shows he's a prophet by saying to Simon, effectively, I know what you're thinking. So he's got an assumption. Look, God knows everything. God's people, God's prophets, uh, they, they, they know certain things. That That she's a sinner. He should know that. His conclusion is he can't be a prophet otherwise... Well, he would have known. But that comes out of his wrong assumption. And his wrong assumption is this. God wants nothing to do with people whose lives are messed up. If he was a prophet, if God had sent him, if he was acting on God's behalf, he'd know what she's like. And there is no way he would tolerate her anywhere near his feet, wiping his feet with her hair. If she's let her hair down. Some would see that as a, in itself, uh, almost like a, an immoral declaration, letting her hair down, wiping his feet with her hair, kissing his feet. God and those who purport to represent him would never, ever have anything to do with that kind of person or that kind of activity. There's his assumption about God. People whose lives are messed up have no place. Near God, have no place in God's affections, in God's thinking, other than to say, well, they, they've messed up, so they're, they're, they're gone. Really, they are, they are written off. That's how this man Simon is thinking uh, in terms of this lady. He's not thinking, is there some way back for her? His thinking is, no, actually, before God, she's, she's gone, she's past tense. And that's why his thinking is, this man can't be a prophet. He can't be representing God because he's letting this go on. Maybe you've got that kind of assumption about God this afternoon as well, in the sense, not in the sense that you feel, well, it would be hard for me uh, to get to know him, but maybe you, you've thought, well, yeah, I'm sure, that's, I'm sure that actually that's what the church says, uh, and that, that's what the Bible teaches, that, that God has no time for people whose lives aren't spotless, that if there is any hint of the sort of thing that is so evident in this woman's situation that his reaction will be door is closed uh, and you are to be spoken of in the past tense. That's where Simon is coming from. He looks at her, he draws that conclusion concerning her. The way that Jesus handles this scene says to us nothing could be further from the truth than that. And I just want I want to move on to the uh, the middle part of this story because it's it's fascinating how it how it turns out but I just want for a moment to if you like to to nail that one to knock that one on the head and to say that consistently through the bible you see the living god actually engaging with and handling the lives of people who are so broken and so messed up if you just take the Uh, the sort of the genealogies of Jesus that are given in Matthew and in Luke's gospel and look at the people who are in his family line leading up to the coming of Jesus. There are some real characters in there and I'm using real characters as a kind of polite way of saying uh, some people whose lives, uh, well, not just messed up but deeply twisted and full of things that would in many ways make your hair curl and you'd look at them and think, well, They surely, if anyone is going to be beyond the pale, that kind of person would. But the very fact they're there in those genealogies, in those antecedents of Jesus, it says to us, no, God is active in their lives. You can work this all the way through the Bible from beginning to end, how God persists with people, stays with them, when the going gets tough and they show that their, their hearts are twisted, deceitful, scheming, that they're jealous, they're bitter, they're greedy, they're envious, all sorts of things, that God hangs in there. That the first instance of that, or the second or the third, it's not that God is saying doors are closed. The man's assumption about the character of God is wrong. I wonder if your assumption about God is similar to his, and if it's being challenged through what we're going to see this afternoon. God could not have any real engagement with me because of the things that have happened that maybe you only know about that no one else perhaps does. Haven't we all got those things, things that I know that no one else knows, and I know that no one else knows, and maybe the same is is true with you as well. And it can hang over us like a dark cloud. Sometimes if you're, if you're in a place where there's mountains, you look up and it's, it's wonderful, isn't it? The sun is shining on them uh, and the scene is very clear, the grass at the top or the snow, whatever it would be. Other times you're in the same spot and the clouds have come down. Real heavy clouds. You can't see a thing. Maybe there are times that you might think, well, that's, that's my life actually in terms of God. It's not that there is a clear mountaintop because my life is not clear. It's muddy. It's dirty. And and he cannot, surely, want to have any dealings with me. Well, that's Simon's assumption. That's why he's shocked at Jesus. Why are you not saying to her, go on, sling your ruck, woman? Why is he allowing her to kiss his feet, wipe them with her hair, pouring on this ointment, kissing and so on? There's a wrong assumption that Jesus needs to nail. The heart of God is compassionate towards broken, messed up people. People who effectively are like you and I. It's an assumption about God that needs to be challenged. There's another assumption going on in this scene that we'll come to in in a moment or two. But the thing that that really takes the picture forward and that uh, opens up in a a quite uh, fascinating way here uh, has to do with Simon's assessment of what's going on and Jesus turning that, in a sense, on its head and challenging him about his own perception of Jesus and his own response to Jesus. It comes out when, when Jesus engages him there in, uh, down in verse 40. Simon, I've got something to tell you, okay? Tell me, teacher. Two men. He's going to tell him a story. He's going to tell him a parable, if you like, or an illustration. Two men owe money to someone. One owes 500 denarii. Denarius, apparently, the daily wage of a day laborer. 500 days worth of money is owed. I guess if you're putting it into um, our kind of, I'm quickly trying without having already done this, work out a kind of um, sum in my mind. 500 days, it's a year and a half. If it's 23,000, that's the, well, we're talking about 40,000 pound, I guess. Something of that kind of order. One owes 40,000 pounds. Another person owes him 50 days labor, the equivalent of in money terms, 4,000. He says there's two people. They owe money to someone. One owes 40 grand. The other owes four grand. And the man wipes off the debts of both of them. Now, Simon, which of those two is going to love him more? Which one's going to heave the biggest sigh of relief? The 40,000 or the 4,000? Well, Simon shows that clearly he did uh, A-level, whatever it might have been. He says, I suppose the one who's had the bigger debt of money. Doesn't take much to work that out, does it? You know, someone comes to you and says, I'm willing either to pay off your mortgage or I'll pay for your next holiday, unless your mortgage now has decreased over the years and, and your holiday is going to cost more than you. You'd probably say, okay, take the mortgage. Thanks very much. You know, I'll, I'll worry about the holiday myself. I'll have the mortgage. Thank you. And you'll be so grateful. Simon's got it right. I suppose the one who's had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus says. Why is he telling them this? Why are we going through basic sense of, well, you know, in life, if someone wipes off a a big debt for you, you are so grateful. If they wipe off a small debt for you, well, you are grateful, but not in in an overblown sense, perhaps. He turns towards the woman. It's got something to do with her, and it's got something to do with Simon, and it's got something to do with Simon's lack of awareness and appreciation of who Jesus is and his own need as a Pharisee before Jesus he turns to the woman and says to Simon do you see this woman let's talk about her Simon and let's talk about you I want to talk about how she has treated me and how you have treated me and how those the contrast between the two tells me something Simon not just very important about her but that tells me something very important about You, Simon. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. Jesus is saying, I'm on your turf, Simon. Not on hers. This is your house. You're the host. You didn't give me any water for my feet. It's a common duty of a host. When someone in that culture came into your house and they have been walking down the dusty streets... You would set before them, not because it was the queen, but just because because you're, you're, you're an honorable person, because you respect other people. It's just a genuine, general sort of acceptance of the person into your home. You give them a bowl of water for their feet. It wasn't out of the ordinary to do that. I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. Simon, you didn't even treat me like you would have treated anyone else coming into your house. You didn't treat me with just general respect. She wet my feet with her tears. What you failed to do, she's actually done through her tears, Simon. And it's not her home, it's yours. And she's wiped my feet with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. You might think, well, if I was Jesus, I'd be pretty glad. You know, I wouldn't want Simon to give me a kiss either going in his home. The custom of the day in that culture, uh, well, still today in some countries I've got a friend who works in France and he's had to get used to the whatever the French bloke, there's a name for it. If, uh, if you've ever been there, then you may have seen them doing it. Uh, it used to be lovies in this country that did it, wasn't it? You know, just the actors and actresses kiss on each other's cheek. More and more people are, are doing it now, but that, that's how you handle things in those days. Simon should have given Jesus a kiss, sort of brushing of the cheek, whatever they may have done, however you you, you handled it. But that was a sign of welcome. You are welcome in my home. You didn't give me any water for my feet. That's just general respect. You didn't give me a kiss. You didn't say in the accepted contours of the day, you're welcome. You didn't give me a kiss. This woman, from the time I entered, hasn't stopped kissing my feet Simon, think about it. Think about what this is saying about you and about her and about how you and she are responding to me, says Jesus. You don't even welcome me with with, with the briefest of kisses that conforms to the social norms. She's not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head. Just cheap oil is is what you would give to someone. As an act, again, of welcome and of hospitality and of friendship, you didn't do that for me, Simon. Again, it's a bit strange to our ears, perhaps. You know, I came to your house, you didn't give me any gel. Well, <laughs> I'm not, if I come to yours, I'm not expecting any. Obviously, I don't have much need for that kind of thing. But that's just, again, the social custom of the day. Oil on someone's head. He says, you didn't give me any cheap oil for my head. What's she done? She's poured perfume, an expensive perfume. She has poured it on my feet. Jesus is saying to Simon that in all those ways, there is a real difference between how he perceives and responds to Jesus and how she perceives and responds to Jesus. He is saying to Simon, it, it's like day and night, the difference between you. No water, no kiss, no oil, and she has wet my feet with her tears and kissed them. And poured on me expensive perfume, such a difference, a difference in reaction to Jesus. You might say, well that's, yeah, that's fair enough in life, you know Some people are into it, some people are not into it, some people are born religious, some people are not born religious. Uh, some people are, are very good at, at the social conventions. Other people are well, you know they 're they're pretty poor at it. I remember having some friends. Uh, call at our house some years ago and they'd been there for about an hour and a half and it's a really hot day and, and, and the mother, there was a, a husband and wife and, and three or four children and the mum of the children just says to me and they, they were friends of ours been there about an hour and a half and a hot day and she says to me can I have some water for the kids? I thought, ah, oh, yeah of course you know, well, it's not because I wasn't being friendly with them it just slipped my mind but Jesus is not saying to Simon you need... Um, you need some training, Simon. You're forgetting stuff, mate. You know, it's, you just don't understand how he understood how the society operated. That's not Simon's problem. Simon's problem is not that he needs to have a bleep going off on his phone to remind him that someone's coming in the house, give them some oil and this, that, and the other. Jesus is showing to him, your opinion of me, Simon, is very low. Her opinion of me, Simon, is very high. What I want to pursue with you for a moment or two before we look at her wrong assumption is why the difference? And Maybe it's very pertinent to an occasion like this. Why the difference? Some might be here this afternoon and, and if we were to ask you, you'd say, Jesus means everything to me. Others might say, well, he doesn't mean that much to me, to be honest. What makes the difference? How, how does it come to be that for some people, Jesus means everything? Well, Jesus explains that to Simon here, and we'll look at what he says. He, he goes through that comparison between them, verses 44 through 46. And then he says in verse 47, so I'm telling you, Simon, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. How's it written up there? Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much. That the for she loved much is Jesus saying there's the evidence. He's not saying she's been forgiven because she loved much. He's saying the evidence that she knows that she has been forgiven is that she is doing all these things. Whoever's been forgiven little, loves little. Jesus is saying, Simon, the real difference between you and this woman, the reason you treat me like you do and the reason she's treated me like she does and has, is that she is aware that God, through Jesus, has wiped her slate absolutely clean. She has now, with God, a new life. She is declared by Jesus to be forgiven. Jesus is saying of Simon, you don't know anything of that, Simon. He's not saying, when he says, whoever's been forgiven little, loves little, he's not meaning to imply to Simon, and in the way he told him that story, and says, okay, who's going to love more? The one who's had the bigger debt forgiven. I don't think he's saying to Simon, you know, Simon, you're so close to God's standards. Uh, uh, You've got so little to forgive. I think what he's saying is, Simon, your perception of how much you need forgiving is so different to hers. Not that the reality is different, they both were in great need of forgiveness because they're just human beings like us. So many things that we know in our hearts, it's, it's not been right. The words I spoke, the thoughts I harbored, the ambitions that I cherished, that I knew were simply selfish. The way I pursued that relationship for my own ends, not theirs. We just know, don't we? In our hearts, in honesty, it's not that there are some people who need loads forgiven and some people need little. And that isn't the point that Jesus is making. He's saying, Simon, you don't feel that you need God to forgive you, do you? But she, overwhelmed with a sense of guilt, knows that she has been forgiven. And so her response is to love greatly. I want to suggest to you, when you think of people who are, as you might term, religious and some who are irreligious, people who say that, that Jesus means everything to them, what's the reason for that? Why doesn't he mean anything to you and he means so much to them? Maybe this parable, this, this, this account rather, and the, the story that Jesus told in his explanation here, maybe that is getting to the heart of it. Jesus doesn't mean much to me because I've never really felt that I need God to wipe my slate clean. Simon hadn't. The woman, well, she was well known in that town. I guess most people who saw her, if they engaged with her at all, would have said that kind of thing to her. You're, you're, a, you're a write-off in, 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 in terms of God and in terms of our society. We wish you didn't live in this town, apart from the blokes that may have used her, perhaps. But others, they wouldn't have wanted her around. She would have been so conscious of her brokenness and her need. And that's what Jesus is pointing to. You're not aware, Simon, are you? It takes a lot, actually, to get to that point. It takes a lot of courage to get to that point of actually saying, I'll take a look inside. I'll peel back some of the layers. I'll be open before God. I'll be open before other people. And begin to see what the reality is. Simon had not gone there. He couldn't in part because of who he, who he hung around with, the other Pharisees. If Simon had gone to them and said, guys, I just know that there is so much in my heart that is so wrong. I feel so rotten. And they'd said to him, well, well, what sort of things? And he started opening up about himself and his life. He knows that what their response would be is not a case of, yeah, but you can be forgiven. And things can be put right with you. Their response would have been, We want you out of here. (laughs) Please don't associate with us. If that's the kind of bloke you are, don't associate with us anymore. He's not gone there. It takes a sense of courage, openness, a vulnerability to go to that point, looking within, in God's presence. The woman, Jesus says, she's been there. Why is she doing these things? Why the difference between you and her? Why does Jesus mean everything to one person and nothing to another? Jesus would say it's because of this an experience of mercy and where it's been experienced and the heart has been so changed so touched by by tremendous love and kindness it's just got to flow out into a person's life there's a real challenge there perhaps for us this afternoon if you if you want to talk about any of these things by all means please Uh, Please do when we when when we close, how can a person get to the point when they're willing like the woman to face up to the rottenness and the mess that we've made? If you can see that it would be better to be in her place than in Simon's, and and you're not sure how do I get from there to there, then please do talk about it. But I want to just say one more thing as we come to a close. I said there were two wrong assumptions in this passage first wrong assumption was Simon's. He assumes God wants nothing to do with people whose lives are a mess, with people who've got so much guilt about them that they're aware of, that God's aware of. He'll close the door with them. They are barred forever and for a day. That was a wrong assumption. The woman also has made a wrong assumption. It's not necessarily, I guess, an an assumption, but she's, she's working with something that Jesus knows needs to be brought to a close. He's talked with Simon about her, but then in verse 48, he turns to her. He says to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's not, that can't be the first time he said that to her because of what he's just said to Simon. This woman is loving much because she's been forgiven much. She knows that she was so far away from God and that God, through Jesus, has declared her forgiven. Her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown But then he turns to her and says, your sins are forgiven. The other guests begin to say, who's this even forgives sins? It's God who forgives sins. Jesus is acting as though he was God. Yes, of course. And that's entirely appropriate. But then he turns to her and says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What's her wrong assumption to put it in those terms? Why is Jesus saying these things to her? It seems like a previous encounter with her lies behind this, that she has met Jesus, that he has declared her forgiven, and that's why she's there in this room. That's why she's weeping. That's why she's anointing his feet. She knows that she's been forgiven, and that's why she loves much. So why do you have to say it twice, Jesus, your sins are forgiven? Sometimes it takes a while for that kind of truth to really sink into a person's heart, and maybe the assumption she's working with is this. My sense of guilt has been so great that though God has forgiven me, I've, my only way to live my life now is in that constant sense of overwhelming sorrow for what I was and what I did. And I think Jesus is wanting to say to her, when your sins are forgiven, when God makes you new, He puts you on a new path in which you are able to move forward and your life can be rebuilt. Your sins, he says, are forgiven. Make sure you know that, dear lady, your sins are forgiven. What he'd said to her, he'd meant her sins were forgiven. Then he says, your faith has saved you. She'd put her trust in him. Go in peace. What Jesus is saying to her is, your life can start over again in wholeness and in newness, in peace. Her assumption was, if God has forgiven me, then maybe I'm just locked in that place of sorrow over how my life had been for forever. Maybe she's prepared for that because it's great to know I've been forgiven. But Jesus is wanting to move her forward in her relationship with him. Her life can be lived in peace. She doesn't has to have to stay at that place where always she is thinking, what did I do? And the shame of it. And yes, God has forgiven me, but it still in some way attaches itself to me. Jesus is in effect saying to her, you're released from the snares. All the weight has dropped from you. You can go. You can walk away in peace. The assumption God can forgive me, but I've then got to live in a place where my heart is heavy because of the wrong that I did is another wrong assumption about God. It is a release into a new life that Jesus says is marked by the experience of peace. Well, there's loads in there to, to think of. I just want to leave those things with you this afternoon. How do you see God? Will he deal with messed up people? Jesus says yes. Can he move people forward into a life, a new life of wholeness and newness? Yes. But Why is it that there is a difference? Why is he so center stage for some people and others? Well, he means next to nothing to them. Jesus says it's to do with this issue. Do you know your need to be forgiven? Do you know the reality of the weight of guilt that each one of us bears because when you do and when you know that Jesus in dying on a cross can and has taken that for you you'll never be the same you can't be the same again